what was the initial con conception? My understanding, uh, as, I, as best I can recall, in late November or early December, um, Ken Chesbro had written a memo about electors. And um, my initial conversations with Justin Clark were that um, Justin asked me to look into the matter as as a as a contingency if somehow the campaign was able to win in Wisconsin then the votes of the electors would be submitted so I viewed it initially as a contingency exercise and if x then y exercise if Judge Troopas wins his litigation in Wisconsin, then these contingent electors should have voted um, uh, to be prepared for if there was a switch. In particular, I wanted to draw your attention to what's the second paragraph that starts, I spoke this evening with Mayor Giuliani, who is focused okay. on doing everything possible to ensure that all the Trump-Pence electors vote on December 14th. He is hopeful that the Georgia electors will go along with this strategy. You see that? I do. Yeah, what's your reaction to reading that, that statement? I mean, it's consistent with my understanding of who was driving the, the process. Uh, that was Mayor Giuliani and his team. <laughs> When do you recall this idea of Trump electors meeting in states that he had lost to cast electoral votes first coming up? That would be privilege. Who was involved in that effort to have these Trump electors meet and cast votes in those states that I listed um, from your team? Uh, that would also be privilege. And what was your role, if any, in having alternate electors meet in states that Mr. Trump had lost, including Pennsylvania? The fifth. Did you discuss the alternate electors plan with President Trump either before or after the electors met and cast votes on December 14th, 2020? The fifth. And in this email, Mr. Finley wrote, Rudy's team has designated Ken Chesbro as the point person for the legal documents and Mike Roman as the lead for executing the voting on Monday. Both are copied here and can assist in resolving outstanding issues in your state. Is it accurate that Mr. Giuliani designated you as the lead for executing the voting by alternate electors in advance of December 14th and the meeting of the Electoral College? The fifth. Was it surprising to you to see that uh, John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani and, and others uh, associated with them were you know, sort of pointing to these alternate slates in the context of the joint session? Once again, it depends on what you mean by surprise, right? So on the one hand, it seems like it was even a long shot when we were talking about it on December 7th or 8th, right? Like it just, it was a long shot even then. Uh, at some point in the campaign though, nothing really became surprising. Georgia, and I, you know, and I want Georgia, I know that, by a lot, and 
know, warn against you because that would just be sort of a, a, um, a signature check that didn't mean anything. But if you go back two years and if you can get to Fulton, you're going to find things that are going to be unbelievable, the, the dishonesty that, that we've heard from them. Right. You know, just good sources, really right. good sources. But Fulton, Fulton is the mother load, you know, as the expression goes, Fulton County. Whatever you can do, Francis, it would be uh, it's a great thing. It's an important thing for the country. So important. You have no idea it's so important. Well, Mr. And I very much appreciate it. Well, I, I appreciate your call, and I, I hope you and your family have a very healthy and, and happy Christmas. The U.S. state legislatures who are so frightened that they have a hard time focusing on it. You have got to get them to remember that their oath to the Constitution sometimes requires being criticized. Sometimes it even requires being threatened. Mr. President, it looks like you likely lost the state of Georgia. We're investigating. There's always a possibility. I get it. And you have the rights to go through the courts. What you don't have the ability to do, and you need to step up and say this, is stop inspiring people to commit potential acts of violence. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. And it's not right. I, I, it's not right. Hello and welcome back. Today we are going to continue our journey uh, reading the final report from the select committee for January 6th. We left off uh, last time on page 272, uh, starting to talk about some of the different ways uh, that the president had pressured different officials. And that starts at the very top of page 272 with President Trump's early pressure on public servants. So without further ado, let's just jump right on in. To carry out his plan, Trump, Giuliani, and other surrogates of President Trump publicly and privately sought assistance from state and local officials, whom they assumed would help as Republicans on the same team with the same goal. Some helped, others didn't. On November 12th, U.S. Representative Tim Wahlberg sent an email to President Trump's executive assistant, Molly Michael, describing a request he had received earlier that day. Quote, During my conversation with the president this morning, he asked me to check with key leadership in Michigan's legislature as to how supportive they could be in regards to pushing back on election irregularities and potential fraud. He wanted me to gauge their willingness to talk with him about efforts to bring about transparency and integrity in Michigan's election and report back to him, end quote. Representative Wahlberg added that he had already acted on this request, quote, I've had conversations with Michigan Speaker Lee Chatfield, Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky, and Senate President Pro Tempore, Eric Nesbitt. They is... They all assured me they would look forward to speaking with the president to report on their continued efforts relating to overseeing the election and receiving any suggestions from President Trump. The president would soon host Chatfield, Shirky, Nesbitt, and four other Michigan state lawmakers at the White House. In Arizona, on November 13th, 2020, the day after officials finished counting ballots cast in Maricopa County, Chairwoman Kelly Ward of the Arizona Republican Party texted Mark Meadows that she had just talked to POTUS and that he may call the chairman of the Maricopa Board of Supervisors, Clint Hickman. 
Ward also left a message for Hickman that said, I just talked to the president and he would like me to talk to you and also see if he needs to give you a call to discuss what's happening on the ground in Maricopa. Give me a call back when you can. According to Hickman, Ward was unusually active after the election, even for a party chair, and was the first person to pressure him. One of her first messages to Hickman before trying to connect him with President Trump was, we need you to stop the counting. In Georgia, the president initially took more of a public approach. After the Associated Press called the race there on November 12th, President Trump tweeted harsh criticisms of Governor Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Often these tweets called for them to take specific actions that would have shifted the election results in his favor, such as rejecting a court settlement uh, that dictated the procedures for verifying signatures on absentee ballots, and he was relentless. In November alone, President Trump tweeted that Raffensperger was a so-called Republican and asked where is uh, Brian Kemp, suggesting that they knew they were going to cheat. He called to break the unconstitutional consent decree and urged stricter signature matches with a demand to get it done. He called Kemp hapless and asked why he wouldn't use emergency powers to overrule Raffensperger on the signature verification procedures, declaring that Georgia Republicans are angry. President Trump also retweeted posts asking, who needs Democrats when you have Republicans like Brian Kemp? And why bother voting for Republicans if you get what is Ducey and Kemp? Pennsylvania was an early but not unique example of how President Trump's state pressure campaign affected the lives of the public servants running this country's elections. On November 7th, Rudy Giuliani headlined a Philadelphia press conference in front of the landscaping business called Four Seasons Total Landscaping, near a crematorium and down the street from a sex shop. Standing in front of former New York police commissioner and recently pardoned convicted felon Bernard Carrick, Giuliani gave opening remarks and handed the podium over to his first supposed eyewitness to election fraud, who turned out to be a convicted sex offender. Giuliani claimed at least 600,000 ballots are in question in Pennsylvania and falsely suggested that large numbers of ballots in the state had been cast for dead people, including boxer Joe Frazier and actor Will Smith's father. Within days, Republican Philadelphia City County Commissioner Al Schmidt and others publicly debunked Giuliani's specific allegations of election fraud, including the claims about dead people voting in Pennsylvania elections. In reaction, Trump tweeted on the morning of November 11th that a guy named Al Schmidt, a Philadelphia commissioner and so-called Republican, is being used big time by the fake news media to explain how things were with respect to the election in Philadelphia. He refuses to look at a mountain of corruption and dishonesty. We win. That statement targeting Schmidt led to a deluge of threatening and harassing phone calls and emails by people who heard Trump and falsely held out hope that Schmidt or someone else could overturn the results of Pennsylvania's elections. As a public official, Schmidt was no stranger to threats, but being targeted by the president of the United States was different. In Schmidt's public testimony to the select committee, he described why, quote, Prior to that, the threats were pretty general in nature. 
corrupt election officials in Philadelphia are going to get what's coming to them, and other similar threats. After the president tweeted at me by name, calling me out the way he did, Schmidt explained, the threats became much more specific, much more graphic, and included not just me by name, but included members of my family by name, their ages, our address, pictures of our home, just every bit of detail that you could imagine. As the president continued to push the big lie and vilify public officials, such threats multiplied. Efforts to prevent state and local officials from certifying the election. Some of President Trump's early outreach was part of an effort to prevent state and local officials for, from certifying his loss. One example comes from Michigan and the other from Arizona. Wayne County, Michigan includes Detroit and its surrounding areas. On November 17th, the county's board of canvassers met to certify the election results, a process the Michigan Supreme Court described over a century ago as ministerial and clerical. The meeting started at 6 p.m. and lasted over three hours. Its two Republican members, board chair Monica Palmer and board member William Hartman, first voted to block the certification of the election. After a brief break, Palmer and Hartman returned, changed their votes, and certified the election results. Just over 20 minutes later, Palmer and Hartman received a call from President Trump and RNC chair Ronna McDaniel. Palmer claimed that the call was not pressure. Rather, she said, it was a genuine concern for my safety, and there were general comments about different states, but we really didn't discuss the details of certification. The select committee doesn't know exactly what Trump uh, privately said on that phone call. By the next evening, however, Palmer and Hartman had each issued signed affidavits reassuring their earlier position that Wayne County results should not be certified. Palmer's affidavit even declared that I rescind my prior vote, though rescinding wasn't possible, and her statement had no legal effect. And President Trump apparently knew before it was public that Hartman and Palmer would try to change their votes. Almost eight hours before either of these affidavits were publicly released, President Trump tweeted that these two harassed Patriot canvassers refused to sign the papers. Republicans in Arizona experienced similar treatment. In the most populous and electorally significant county in Arizona, Maricopa County's Board of Supervisors met on November 20th to certify the county's election results. Their board, made up of four Republicans, one Democrat, uh, carefully reviewed the official canvas, asked questions for approximately two hours, then unanimously voted to certify the results. Earlier that day, Kelly Ward contacted two of the board's members, Jack Sellers and Bill Gates, and asked them to delay the certification on the basis of supposed improprieties. According to Sellers and Gates, however, Arizona law required certification that day, and they had no information to doubt the county's election results. When Arizona certified its 2020 statewide election results on November 30th, it fell on Governor Doug Ducey, a Republican, to sign the certification. While on camera during the signing ceremony, Ducey's phone played a ringtone for the song Hail to the Chief, which he immediately silenced. The governor later confirmed it had been Trump calling and that he'd returned the president's call shortly afterwards, but declined to say what the two discussed 
other than saying President Trump did not ask him to withhold certification. The select committee does not know whether that is true, but that evening President Trump blasted Ducey on Twitter, accusing him of rushing to put a Democrat in office and warning that Republicans will long remember. The president also retweeted posts bashing Ducey and his Georgia counterpart, Brian Kemp, which asked, who needs Democrats when you have Republicans like Brian Kemp and Doug Ducey? Why bother voting for Republicans if what you get is Ducey and Kemp? And Brian Kemp, my state ran the most corrupt elections in American history. Doug Ducey, hold my beer. President Trump even commented, true, when retweeting a post that Governor Ducey has betrayed the people of Arizona. Governor Ducey pushed back, writing on Twitter that I've been pretty outspoken about Arizona's election system and bragged about it quite a bit, including in the Oval Office. In Arizona, we have some of the strongest election laws in the country. The problems that exist in other states simply don't apply here. Governor Ducey explained the law for certifying elections in Arizona and pointed out that the certification now triggered a five-day window for any electors to bring a credible challenge to the election results in court. If you want to contest the results, now is the time. Bring your challenges. And Governor Ducey referenced his oath of office. That's the law. I swore an oath to uphold it, and I take my responsibility seriously. President Trump and his allies never brought a credible challenge and instead lost every case they brought challenging the results in Arizona. Efforts to replace electoral college electors and overturn the election. Once counties and states certified the election, or when it was nearly certain that they would, President Trump and his team's focus largely shifted. President Trump and his team encouraged state legislatures to meet in special sessions, if necessary, and choose electoral college electors who would vote for Trump. Ultimately, no state legislator took that step, but it was the basis for pressuring state officials from November through January 6, 2021. The concept of state legislatures appointing their own electors featured prominently in a series of hastily arranged official and unofficial hearings with state legislatures that the Trump team announced on November 24, 2020. On November 25th, Trump called into an unofficial meeting with legislators in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. The meeting was set up to appear like an official hearing, but it was not. It took place in a hotel ballroom, and those presenting arguments or, purpur or purported evidence, like Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, and others, were not placed under oath. According to President Pro Tempore of the Pennsylvania Senate, Jack Corman, he had initially been asked by State Senator Doug Mastriano to hold a hearing about the election. Corman responded that any formal hearing should be official, with sworn testimony open to both parties. That was not what Senator Mastriano ultimately convened. President Trump had originally made plans to attend the Pennsylvania gathering in person, but he canceled after several advisors tested positive for COVID-19. When Trump called in and spoke to those gathered in the hotel ballroom, his false claims were met with cheers and he made his purpose clear. This election has to be turned around. Why wouldn't they overturn an election? Certainly overturn it in your state. We have to turn the election over. President Trump made the ask and Giuliani told the legislatures how to carry it out. 
Giuliani told the assembled legislatures that it was their power and responsibility to pick Pennsylvania's presidential electors and that they have to convince the rest of their members, Republican and Democrat, they owe that to the people of Pennsylvania. Jenna Ellis told them that although Pennsylvania law dictates that electors are chosen by popular vote, you can take that power back at any time. You don't need a court to tell you that. President Trump invited some of the lawmakers to come meet him at the White House that evening, and according to Giuliani, it was a large group that went. Special assistant to the president, Cassidy Hutchinson's text messages with Carrick included the guest list and descriptions of the vehicles that would need access to the White House grounds. Pennsylvania State Senator Doug Mastriano drove one car, a hired driver drove a van with most of the state legislatures, and Carrick drove an SUV with attorney Catherine Frice and election conspiracy proponent Phil Waldron. Hutchison estimated that at least 29 visitors traveled from Pennsylvania to the White House that day, and she explained that her conversation with the president touched on holding a special session of the state legislature to appoint Trump electors. Just a few days later, on November 30th, 2020, Trump also called into another one of Giuliani and Jen Ellis's hotel hearings, uh, this time in Arizona. Several Arizona state lawmakers hosted the meeting at a Hyatt Regency in Phoenix after they did not receive permission to organize an official hearing at the state capitol. Before the hearing started, state GOP Representative Mark Finchman promised information to so to show that the state's 11 electoral votes should not go to Democrat Joe Biden and argued that the United States Constitution empowers lawmakers to decide on their own whether the election was valid and, if not, to select the electors of their choice. Giuliani told the assembled legislatures that the officials certifying Arizona's election results have made no efforts to find out if the results of the election were accurate, which seems to me gives the state legislature a perfect reason to take over the conduct of this election because it's being conducted irresponsibly and unfairly. Likewise, Jenna Ellis said that it was not just the choice, but the actual duty and obligation of the legislature to step in and to make sure that you don't certify false results. During a recess, she also took to Twitter, writing, The certification of Arizona's false results is unethical and knowingly participating in the corruption that has disenfranchised Arizona voters. But this in no way impacts the state legislature's ability to take back proper selection of delegates. When it was President Trump's turn to address this handful of lawmakers over the phone, he called them legends for taking this on and used the opportunity to criticize Governor Ducey. Quote, you'll have to figure out what's that all about with Ducey. He couldn't certify fast enough, and Arizona will not forget what Ducey just did. We're not going to forget. That night, Giuliani joined President Trump in criticizing Governor Ducey, while at the same time making baseless allegations about voting machines in Arizona and calling for a special legislative session to change the outcome of the election. Governor Ducey of Arizona refuses to meet with me. He doesn't want to explain that he selected a foreign corrupt voting machine company to count the vote. I understand his reluctance, but just call a special session. Let's find out how crooked your election really was. Michigan was next. Giuliani's team announced that the Michigan legislature would hold a hearing on December 1st, but the relevant committee chair excluded Giuliani because it was only open to witnesses uh, with first-hand knowledge. 
That chairman, Michigan State Senator Edward McBroom, uh, had already held Senate oversight hearings by then in an actual effort to evaluate claims of fraud in the 2020 election, which ultimately resulted in a comprehensive report that concluded that the Republican-led committee found no evidence of widespread or systematic fraud in Michigan's election. Michigan's House Oversight Committee, however, did allow Giuliani to testify in a hearing on December 2nd. Before the hearing, Giuliani joined the state's GOP chairwoman to give her what was billed as a legal briefing. In the online presentation, Giuliani told the audience that there's nothing wrong with putting pressure on your state's legislatures to pick new electors and that you have got to get them to remember that their oath to the Constitution sometimes requires being criticized. Sometimes it requires being threatened. When Giuliani appeared for the hearing in Michigan, he was not placed under oath, used his time to refer to Michigan's election as a con job, and urge legislatures and have the courage to say that certification that was done by your state is a complete phony. The information presented was baseless and sometimes racist conspiracy theories. One witness brought to, to criticize Michigan's voter verification even said, I think Chinese all look alike, so how would you tell? If some chow shows up, you can be anybody and you can vote. And as he promised in the legal briefing the day before, Giuliani then called on the legislatures to do what Trump campaign had reportedly been discussing since before Election Day. He said that the state legislature could still single-handedly decide the election result anytime you want to. Anytime. You can take it back tonight. You can take it back the day before the electors go down to Washington. Jenna Ellis also participated, insisting no honest person can hear these citizens of your own state today and, uh, and can let this proceed. What the Constitution obligates you to do is to take back your plenary power. To be clear, did you hear the White House Counsel's Office say that um, this plan to have alternate electors meet and cast votes for Donald Trump in states that he had lost was not legally sound? Yes, sir. And do you remember approximately when that was? I'm trying to not be overly broad, but right now sitting here, I can recall at the time, perhaps early to mid-December. Now, it very well could have been the end of November, but I'm trying to think about benchmark events and dates in my head, and early to mid-December is the safer bet. And who was present for that meeting that you remember? Mr. It was in our office. It was Mr. Meadows, Mr. Giuliani, and a few of Mr. Giuliani's. Um, it's not one of the term associates, but Mr. Giuliani's associates. Do you remember who from White House? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, associates, colleagues, however it might be characterized, but. Do you remember who from White House Counsel's office was there and delivered that message? The very first time I heard it, I, I know Mr. Cipollone. I'm inclined to say Mr. Pat Golden as well. Um, so how did you come to understand that, that this was morphing? I think there was an email either from somebody on Rudy's team or Ken Cheeseborough about doing, having contingent electors vote in other states. And 
I just remember I either, I either replied or called somebody saying, unless we have litigation pending, that's like in these states, like, I don't think this is appropriate or, you know, this isn't the right thing to do. I don't remember how I phrased it, but um, and I got into a little bit of a back and forth and I think it was with Ken Cheeseboro um, where I said, all right, you know, I mean, you just get after it. Like I, I'm out. And I believe I had a, I probably told Matt, I probably told Josh, like, don't do anything more on this. This is, this is like going down a road that just doesn't make any sense. Okay. Make any sense? Did you have a problem with the, the sort of process, the legal issue with the process or it wasn't a legal, it it was more like, what are we, what are we having contingent electors vote? If there's no contingency whereby their votes are going to be counted. Like what's the, this is stupid. Like, why are we doing this? Do you know what Matt Morgan or Justin Clark's views on this were specifically alternate electors? Yeah, I think they thought it was crazy. Did they tell you that? Did you talk to them about it? Uh, I had certainly had conversations, uh, I know, with, with Justin about it. Um, but the way it's presented is that the, it's crazy to think that this will work. Um, it's not going to go anywhere. So we have testimony that indicates that Justin Clark, Matt Morgan, and Josh Finley informed uh, the the campaign, uh, likely the president himself, but also uh, Rudy Giuliani and those working with him, that they did not feel it was appropriate to proceed with this plan and that they would no longer be involved. They were at that time told that this lawyer, Ken Cheesebro, would be the point person for this campaign or not campaign, this this effort to convene the alternate slates of electors. It doesn't sound like that was communicated to you. Is that, that fair? Not, that, yeah, that was not communicated to me. Okay. Uh, how does that affect your understanding of, of these events? Um, if I had, I known that, you know, I would have thrown my hands up in the air because that that was not communicated to me at all. They were asking me to facilitate having the electors meet uh, and sign some sort of document. And I was very uncomfortable with that as per um, my lawyer's uh, opinion as well, like confirmed that we felt that that was something that was not appropriate. Um, so we came up with a document that we would have them have a ceremonial meeting um, and one person would sign a document stating that if perhaps something were to happen in the courts, they were willing and able to serve to as electors from Michigan for Donald Trump and Mike Pence. These people were going to, in violation of the lockdown, um, sneak in and stay overnight and then allegedly kind of cast their vote in the Michigan Capitol. Okay. So when you say hide overnight, you mean what you just said, they sneak into the Capitol on the 13th, hide there so they could vote on the 14th. That's what he told me. Yes. And I, in no uncertain terms told him that that was a very, very bad idea and potentially illegal. You said that you were uncomfortable now a couple of times with this and thought it was inappropriate. Why, why is that? If you could explain that a little bit more. Well, one, um, 
I think it was just, uh, it was a harebrained idea and the more details I got, it became more harebrained. When you read those Eastman memos, did you see a connection between what you had been asked to do convening these electors and, and what I, he had recommended? I thought that it was, um, that, that there certainly was a connection. Um, I don't know if at the time, um, that had been the kind of shadow, if you will, strategy. And we were just, you know, kind of, kind of useful idiots or rubes at that point, you know, just kind of do it and get it. I don't know if that had been done. Um, part of me, you know, a strong part of me really feels that it's just kind of as the road continued and as that was failure, 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 that, that, that got formulated as what do we have on the table? Um, let's just do it. And how did that make you feel about your having been involved in the, the alternate electors meeting in Georgia once you saw those memos and, and thought that there was a link? I was ashamed. I was ashamed. And that is going to conclude this part for today. I want to thank you guys for taking the time to listen with me. I hope you come back to join me for the next one. If you have any questions or concerns, comments, etc., just shoot me an email at contact at rotaterra.com. And uh, see you guys later. Bye.